This is episode 289. It's likely you've heard both me and many people in your life use the word diabetes. But what exactly does it mean and which one is it? It can be a little confusing figuring out what diabetes type 1, type 2 and gestational diabetes all mean. So on this episode, I'm going to explain each one and how it's different to the next and how to identify someone that should be concerned. Alrighty, let's dive in. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. Hey, what's up, my healthy friends? Welcome back to another episode of the show, which comes requested specifically requested from, um, well, I mean, a few people over the years, but more specifically, I had an email uh, that was asking me to differentiate in a very clear way the difference between diabetes type 1 and type 2. And so I wanted to put this episode together to respond to that email because there may or may not have been times where I have referred to diabetes without clarifying the very vast majority of the time I'm talking about type 2 diabetes which anybody that is overweight should be considering uh, being concerned about because we become insulin resistant with the more body fat that we have. And that is a sign of prediabetes, which eventually leads to diabetes. And the best answer to that is not insulin injections, dare I say it, sorry, big pharma, but it is actually healthy diet change and therefore a reduction in your body fat and an improvement in your blood sugar so that you can actually not have to worry about that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, that's a thing. But as you know, in 2023, it's my mission to coach 500 people to stop the binge eating and savage self-talk cycle so they can lose weight whilst feeling in control and without restriction along the way. And a feature of doing this is making sure that we get control of our blood sugar Uh, and getting control of your blood sugar and your insulin response and any sign of insulin resistance or pre-diabetes is making sure that we well, do what I just mentioned. But for those that are interested in understanding this due to a recent diagnosis or they know somebody or they are looking in the mirror thinking, shit, this might be of concern. I want to make sure that we understand the difference between type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes and gestational diabetes because there is a significant difference that is worth talking about. Now, I just want to do a little bit of a checklist before we get into this, right, as to some of the terms that I'm going to be using. So, It's type 1, type 2 gestational diabetes. So that's, I'm going to explain what the three of those are. I'm also going to talk about blood sugar and glucose. So blood sugar is just the sugar or the glucose that is in your blood. So blood sugar and glucose are used interchangeably in this conversation. And that's a result of eating food, carbohydrates mostly, that becomes glucose via digestion and going through the liver and then entering the blood to be used as energy in your cell. And then the other major thing that we're going to talk about is insulin, or that is a feature of these conversations is insulin. And insulin is a hormone that is released in the pancreas and it's got a couple of jobs. Most people hear about it in the context of blood sugar in that blood sugar, once blood sugar happens, we need the pancreas to release insulin so that insulin goes out and it's essentially the pickup truck. So leaving sugar in the blood too long or glucose in the blood too long can be toxic to the point that it can lead to death. And so actually what we want to do is we want to send out insulin is leaving the pancreas to allow the sugar in the blood to be picked up by insulin and transported into the cell for energetic use. And if there's an excess, we're moving it into cells, uh, whether it be in the liver or whether it be in the muscles or eventually the body fat 
in order to be able to store that sugar as energy, that glucose as energy. Now, the other part of the body that's worth just spending a little bit of time on so you understand what I'm talking about is the pancreas. Because when we're talking about diabetes, we're talking about in some way, in some form, the functioning of cells within the pancreas. So the pancreas, um, its main function is to produce digestive enzymes so that you can make sure that everything you eat gets uh, broken down and digested and absorbed in an appropriate way. And in the context of diabetes and all forms of diabetes, there's three cells that are worth talking about. So there's alpha cells produce glucagon, and we'll talk about glucagon soon. There's beta cells. Now, this is the most frequent one that's talked about in diabetes type 1 and 2, um, which is they produce insulin. So that's where the pickup trucks get produced from. That's kind of the factory where the truck is made is in the beta cell, and it sends out the truck called insulin. And so what I want to start with is diabetes type 1. So now we've got a bit of an understanding, blood sugar, glucose, interchangeable, insulin, then pancreas produces digestive enzymes, then has alpha cells that produce glucagon, beta cells that produce insulin. So diabetes type 1. This is the one that you do not hear that much about because it's only in 5 to 10% of people. It's considered an autoimmune disease, meaning that it is the body attacking itself or the body letting itself down in a way that it is not intentionally designed to do. The immune system of the body attacks the beta cells. So remember the beta cells, they release the insulin, which helps us transport the sugar that is in the blood from the food that we've eaten, it transports that sugar into the cells for cellular mitochondrial energetic use. But in this situation for type 1, the beta cells are not producing insulin or they're damaged in some way or they're defective. So they produce either a lot less or they completely stop making insulin altogether. And what this means is that we end up in that situation I mentioned earlier, which is that you can get a toxic amount of sugar in the blood. And so for these people, they have to be really careful about the way that they manage their blood sugar because they don't actually have insulin in their system. And so these people are often given insulin injections to be able to artificially add that to their blood supply so that their body can actually utilize the sugar that they're given. And it can be really scary if it's not managed effectively because you can have terrible outcomes when you've got too much blood sugar. I mentioned death. That's a very unlikely scenario, but you can end up in a coma. There's lots of situations that can happen from toxic levels of blood sugar that you should be concerned about if you're in this situation. So signs that you're actually looking down the barrel of a possible type 1 diabetic diagnosis might be extreme thirst or needing to urinate a lot. Uh, And the reason that you would need to urinate a lot is because what the body does in that situation of excess glucose in the blood, one of the ways that it tries to detoxify that out of the body is to go through the urine. So the excretion process goes up as your system tries to get as much of the sugar out of the body via the urine as it can. So therefore you end up peeing a lot. And so What that individual needs to do is have a really clear understanding of balancing carbohydrates that they take into the body. So they might have to actually micromanage their carbohydrate intake and balance that with their insulin injections. And after it'll take a little while for that person to figure out what's the right amount of insulin injection is compared to carbohydrates that they've eaten. And so they learn to do that. And then as they have different meals and different things, they change the insulin injection volume based on the amount of carbohydrates that they've eaten in that meal or that they're intending to eat in the meal coming up. And you've got to be careful because if you have too much insulin, then you can lead to a situation where you're passing out It can cause cravings because insulin is there to remove sugar, right? And so if you have too much, then you've got this situation where you have a hormone that is looking for the presence of sugar and doesn't have it. So it can actually drive cravings for you 
to force sugar into the blood so the insulin has a job to do. And that's actually side note to the diabetes conversation. If you go on a huge binge uh, or you go out, have some beers, have some wine, have a big dinner, there's a dessert, you totally overeat. Again, this is for people without diabetes. And you wake up the next morning, you've got cravings or hunger. Practically think about it. You're like, there's no way that I could be hungry today. I ate so much yesterday. Sometimes what that is called or referred to is an insulin hangover, is that the amount of glucose that you put into your body in a short period of time meant that your pancreas skyrocketed, the beta cells skyrocketed insulin secretion and pumped so much into your blood that even the next day, there's some left over or some trickling out of the pancreas. And so you're in a situation the next day where physically you don't actually require any nutrition. You've got so much energy in your system and some of it's probably gone to fat storage as well. But this leftover insulin is actually driving that craving. So having too much insulin can drive or increase hunger and cravings and therefore as a result of that, weight gain, metabolic syndrome, PCOS and everything that's driven by overeating. And that can be diagnosed as hyperinsulinemia, so too much insulin. However, the risks uh, for type 1 diabetics are in the other direction, right? Which is not enough or no insulin. Hence, they need to inject. So if you don't have enough insulin, it can lead to ketoacidosis, which, disclaimer, is not the keto diet and not ketosis, okay? It's diabetic ketoacidosis. And what happens there is the body is breaking down fat as fuel for you to burn as energy because the insulin isn't supplying the cells with sugar because it can't transport it there because either it's not in the blood or the insulin is defective or not there itself, right? And you might say, great, burn all of the fat away, please. But some really serious consequences can happen as a result of ketoacidosis or the buildup of too many acids in your blood. And this situation highlights insulin's other role, which not many people talk about. And that is that insulin is not only a sugar transporter, but it also helps keep fat in storage, your body fat in storage and locked up, thus preventing ketoacidosis. But then on the other side is if you have really low insulin and low blood sugar, and more specifically, is if the blood sugar falls below where it needs to be as a type 1, you can experience a range of painful and problematic things, including seizures and in rare cases, even death. Then you've got low blood sugar, really high ketones at this point, hence the ketoacidosis. So it needs to be managed and it needs to be managed by somebody that knows what's going on, basically. And often what comes up in this conversation is, well, maybe I'll go carnivore because the carnivore has basically no carbohydrates. And that is definitely a tool. That's a tool that uh, I know we've had people on the podcast that are type 1 diabetics that manage their diet with mainly a keto carnivore type template, which lowers the amount of you know pharmaceutical drugs they need to take, but it doesn't totally eliminate that process from their life. And there may be people out there that have been able to be type 1 diabetics and uh, you know, eliminate the use of insulin. I've never heard of that happening personally, but um, I've heard of lots of wild and wonderful things in the world of alternative health. So you never know. Um, But I do know people that in order to lower the amount of medication they need to take, they do lean in the direction of that carnivore type diet for the most part. This is not a prescription, by the way. I'm just talking to you and informing you about information. Now, it's important for us to clarify a couple of terms as well. When we talk about hyperglycemia, so hyper goes up, that means there's too much sugar in the blood. So we've got too much glucose in the blood. And then there's hypoglycemia. So the difference is er and o. So hypoglycemia is not enough sugar in the blood. 
And one last thing that I should mention before we jump into the next bit is that for the very vast majority of type 1 diabetics, it's in children that it's identified because it's an autoimmune disease and it happens quite young. You can be born with it. It doesn't happen very often in adults, although just as we're seeing with all diseases in the modern diet and lifestyle is that we are seeing an increase in these cases occurring in adults, just as type 2 diabetes, which we're about to talk about, you know, originally it was elderly. The elderly people got it and then it became adults and then we called it adult onset and then it became kids and now everybody gets it, you know. You can even get it before you're born for type 2 I'm talking about. So let's talk about type 2 diabetes. So that's 90 to 95% of all diabetic cases in adults are type 2 diabetes, which means there's too much sugar in the blood and therefore too much insulin. And this happens regularly. So often what happens as a consequence of eating too much sugar in a single meal or eating too often means that there's too much sugar in the blood. So it's likely that there's weight gain or you're overweight. And because the pancreas and the beta cells, remember they're the pickup truck, are releasing insulin so much. Like every meal, they're pumping out way, way, way more than they should be. Beta cells get to a point where they can be burnt out. They're knackered right? They're absolutely knackered. And you can go in either direction in this situation. You can be in a situation where the beta cells just constantly put insulin into the bloodstream so they don't turn off or they can burn out, which, and that can be a feature of the next one, which is that they end up burning out completely and not releasing enough insulin or actually not releasing insulin at all. So in that situation, it's similar to the type 1 diabetes because you get to a point where the cells are so burnt out. But the initial causation is the difference, which is in type 1 diabetes, there's the beta cells are being destroyed by the body and therefore not uh, doing what they should do. In type 2 diabetes, it's the diet and lifestyle that overworks the pancreas and the beta cells to the point that they break effectively. And I'm obviously using simple terms and simplifying this type of thing because I want everybody to understand it. There are other mechanisms at play here, but you don't actually need to understand type 2 diabetes on a deep level to be able to do positive things about it. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. 
And one of the things that happens as a result of burning out your beta cells is that when your blood is full of sugar after you've eaten, um, you can actually be in a situation just like I said before, which where it can be toxic, comas, seizures, death, uh, passing out, increased cravings. What happens is that you end up in a situation where you can overeat. And this is why people with insulin resistance and what insulin resistance is, is one of two things really. It's this pathological condition in which cells either fail to respond normally to insulin. And what I mean by that is when insulin arrives at the cell, the front door of the cell, the cell then opens up and says, hey, come inside, um, dump your sugar here right? When the insulin arrives at the cell door, the cell door doesn't open. The cell is resistant to insulin or the down regulation of insulin receptors in response to hyperinsulinemia. Now, what I mean by that is that when you're in a situation with hyperinsulinemia, you've got too much insulin. And so the cells themselves are reducing the possibility of picking up those cells. And therefore, you end up with a situation where you've got insulin bound to sugar, which just sits in the blood. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't go anywhere because the cell is either totally loaded because we've overeaten or the downregulation of these receptors are no longer picking it up or the door isn't opening at all. So this is in a nutshell what insulin resistance is uh, in simplified terms, of course. But what this can lead to is that if you have eaten a certain amount of food, and it doesn't need to be a catastrophic amount of food, but an amount of food that tells your body that you should be full and satiated, If the insulin doesn't transport the food into the cell, then you're in a situation where your organs and the cells in which are meant to receive the sugar guided and leveraged by the insulin, if they don't actually receive that, then you're in a situation where the organs are still hungry. They haven't actually been fed their energetic supply. The carbohydrates, the sugar that will then be burnt as energy in the mitochondria to power your body, your thoughts, your life. And so this can lead to overeating because it can tell your organs to send a message to your brain to say, hey, we haven't received the energy. We thought we ate some energy before, but it hasn't arrived. Go and eat some more. It clearly wasn't enough. And so this process of insulin resistance drives cravings and drives overeating because your body can't actually detect where the energy is because it's all sitting outside the front door, but nobody is answering the door, right? No one's answering the door of the cell. This can then lead to triggering the pancreas to release the hormone glucagon. Now, glucagon is released by the pancreas to have the cells release sugar back into the blood. The reason for this is because your organs are screaming out for sugar. So obviously, the body is saying, hey, we need to prioritize the organs. They're really important. However, the miscommunication is here is that there's actually plenty of sugar in the blood in this type 2 diabetes situation. Either it's bound to insulin or there's not enough insulin, right? And so the problem there is that glucagon is released by the pancreas and tells the cells, hey, actually, we need some of that sugar that you borrowed or that you took. We need to borrow it back into the blood to send it to some of the other organs. But what they don't know is there's actually heaps of sugar and glucose already in the blood. And so then we end up with a double dumping of sugar into the blood. This is a situation that happens in type 2 diabetes if it's not managed correctly which just then exacerbates all the possible symptoms that could happen in the situation of type 2 diabetics and the possible negative outcomes of that. Now, how how do you detect whether somebody is possibly dealing with a type 2 diagnosis and doesn't know it yet? Similar to what I said before, they drink a lot of water, they need to pee a lot because it's the same idea. They're detoxing their body of the toxic levels of sugar and they're trying to excrete it all through the urine. Um, They're constantly hungry. They're overeating a lot. Um, they've got an insatiable appetite uh, and gaining weight and even blurry vision. You can actually have 
Um, you can go blind with type 2 diabetes and you can even have temporary vision impairment attacks if you like, which is that people can eat so much sugar uh, in a certain sitting or a certain period of time that they go temporarily blind, which is absolutely terrifying. So that's type 2 diabetes and it's the most common and it's the most common because, well, type 1 is mostly people are born with it or it's genetic. Type 2 is what the modern diet and lifestyle results in after you do it for too long because it's strongly related to having a diet of refined sugars, refined grains, refined carbohydrates, exceptionally high levels of uh, sugar in foods that there shouldn't be. And we've developed this palate in the Western world and most of the world at this point uh, where we want things to be much, much, much sweeter than nature would ever make them. Uh, And so that leads to the pancreas needing to do extra work to manage the extra level of sugar levels. And then as a result, because we're overeating energy, aka sugar, it leads to weight gain. And that weight gain then perpetuates this entire cycle of eating poorly, having cravings, and leading to slowly, more and more over time, dysfunctional levels of insulin or behavior by the beta cells in the pancreas. And that's why anyone that is overweight in my opinion, will and should have some measurable degree of insulin resistance. It's very unlikely that you would be overweight and have no dysfunction in your um, beta cells or pancreas or insulin release. Now, again, I'm not diagnosing anyone. This is just me speaking about knowledge that I've learned through education, books, programs, courses, (laughs) um, being taught about the body, all that kind of jazz. Um, But this is basically what happens. But it's my opinion, and I've had people in my program do this, whether my program was uh, connected to the outcome or not, I don't know. But you know, disclaimer. When we change the diet, we do some intermittent fasting, we move to a more low-carb diet, but don't neglect carbs completely because we don't want to become carb-resistant is really important as well, that you see a reversal of these types of symptoms. You see a reversal in uh, the situation that you have in your bloods with type 2 diabetes. I know so many people that have healed their type 2 diabetes through diet and I have personally been the nutritionist that has worked with many people that have done this. It's becoming increasingly larger, the number of people with type 2 diabetes that reach out to me. And interestingly is that many of those people also work with me on emotional eating because they often know what they need to do, but they can't stop the behaviors that they have developed over years and years of becoming effectively, you know, emotionally dependent or sugar addicted to sugar. (laughs) because that's the world we live in, unfortunately. So next thing I want to talk about is gestational diabetes, right? So gestational diabetes happens when women are pregnant. So only women that were born with a vagina can experience this. So no, there's no man on the earth that can experience gestational diabetes. (laughs) Um, But it's characterized by having hyperglycemia. So remember, blood sugar is too high, hyperglycemia in the third trimester. Um, and what this can result on in for that woman, and it's actually quite high, is that they have an increased risk of type 2 diabetes later in life, as high as 50% of mothers that have gestational diabetes eventually end up being diagnosed later in life with type 2 diabetes. So it's really quite high. Um, and it's got many of uh, similar features to type 2 diabetes. There's insulin resistance. The people at risk of this, older women, obese women, women that have a poor diet, and women that are of non-Caucasian ancestry, that's just what the data seems to show is that um, there is a slightly lower risk in your average white person, but it's really not that much lower than 
anyone else. It's white people are so prone to living these unhealthy diets. But, you know, at this point, because we're such a global community, we all are. And everyone should be taking this seriously is my point. Um, Of course, if you've got a family history of type 2 diabetes, that's going to be really important as well because you might have a genetic predisposition. Now, genetic predisposition does not mean your fate is sealed. I need to do a podcast on this and I've probably done this before. All it means is that the likelihood that those genes will be activated is slightly more or significantly more than other people. It doesn't mean you have to switch those genes on, right? With diet and lifestyle, you can either never engage with those genes or you can even switch them off and reverse them, right? Uh, The other thing is PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a problem with ovaries, obviously. Um, And if you talk to anybody that's been diagnosed with PCOS, often on um, some type of drug which may or may not be used in other people's type 2 diabetes situation, which is metformin, you know, different varieties of insulin, um, which you could argue PCOS is actually diabetes of the ovaries, um, which is a conversation for another day. But the point is that these are all precursors to gestational diabetes. And the way that they test for it in hospitals to see if you've got it is the oral glucose uh, tolerance test, which is done whilst fasting, um, which is obviously a risky thing to do if you're... um a pregnant mother. So don't go doing anything crazy with fasting whilst you're a mom, whilst you're a pregnant mum. The other thing to acknowledge in this situation is that the baby, the fetus, of course, is that so babies that are, you know, born to mums that had gestational diabetes, the fetus, that means the fetus has been receiving too much glucose. So your fetus is getting too much sugar, which means that your baby has an increased risk of having type two diabetes and more prone to being overweight and diabetic Um, before it was born, it was having to battle with too much sugar in its bloodstream. And so that means the fetus itself produces more of its own insulin. Mum's producing more of her own insulin than she should be. You end up in this hyperinsulinemia situation uh, with both bub and mum, right? And this is before the baby's even born. Um, And this is something that can be easily managed for the most part, not everyone, but easily managed with diet, having a healthy diet, going into pregnancy, being a healthy person, and making sure that you do the best you can to be healthy throughout your pregnancy. Obviously, that doesn't guarantee it. There's different situations that happen for all mums, and some people that are super healthy still have terrible experiences. So remember that you you can do the best you can, but sometimes fate is in the hands of somebody else. That doesn't mean you should outsource your responsibility to do the best you can, though. And as a result of this hyperinsulinemia, because you've got insulin for the baby and insulin from mum, sometimes the answer, which I think like I don't have a better answer, but it's not a good answer, is they end up doing glucose infusions to solve the problem. So there's all this excess insulin that's screaming for sugar to bind to. So they add more sugar to the system. (laughs) They do a glucose infusion in some cases, not all cases. So the resulting situation from a fetus or a baby that has consumed too much sugar before breathing life began is that it usually ends up in C-sections due to the size of the baby because now the baby is overweight uh, in many cases. And so there's problems with C-sections. And I actually um, I broke the rules at university and was at different stages of my university life was being paid to do people's assignments. And I remember being paid assignments on VBACs, which is a vaginal birth after cesarean. So it means that if you've had a cesarean with your first child, the aim is to have a vaginal birth with the second child. Anyway, in the research for those assignments that I did for those nursing students <laughs> back in the day, um, was that there's, there's a lot of downsides to having um, a C-section. 
And those downsides are, sure, you get to book it in your calendar and it's all real convenient and it's like amazing because you can schedule when you're going to have a baby and, oh, technology is so good. However, not exposing the baby to all of the bacterial species throughout the vaginal canal and doing all the work of beginning survival for the baby means that your baby is at risk of not having a strong immune system, not being able to develop um, that initial uh, resilience in its own microbiome, uh, which is what we want to do. And it needs to be exposed to that initial struggle of getting out of the body. And there's a bit written on that. And I'll, you know, maybe I'll go into that in another podcast. But the point is that Whilst you may or may not disagree that C-sections are great, I personally think wherever you can get away with it, you should have a vaginal birth. And I guess, you know, avoiding all the pain. Mm, yeah, sure. I'm a man. I can sit here and say whatever I want and you can be, might be like, shut the fuck up, Maddie. <laughs> You're a man. But look, if I was getting married and having a kid, I would be strongly urging my partner to move in the direction of a vaginal birth if she wasn't up for it because of everything I know. Um, and obviously in emergency situations, like thank, thank whichever God you like that we have technology to be able to support C-sections. Anyway, I'm going to get off my high horse now. Um, so what I've gone through here is type one diabetes, five to 10% of the population type two diabetes, 90 to 95% of the cases out there. And then gestational diabetes, which is becoming more and more and more of a problem as we get more and more obese mothers and we get more and more sugar addicted people that are trying to make babies or successfully making babies because they wouldn't have had a baby in them if they weren't successful. (laughs) And you can't get gestational diabetes unless you are a woman, an actual woman that has a baby. Um, So yeah, so that's the difference between the three and they are different. Um, They've got many similar symptoms and they've got many similar consequences. But if you're concerned about having any of these, then definitely go and talk to the doctor, go and get a fasting glucose test or an A1C test as well. Uh, They'll likely do both and check your blood sugar, your insulin. It's really easy to test this stuff from home these days. There's CGMs, which you can stick in your arm and and track your information. Uh, But careful with some of the data on those. You can get obsessive and you can be in a situation where you're getting incorrect data. So go and get a blood test go and get a lab to do it and you can learn this information and my advice to anybody that came to me with um, especially type 2 diabetes would be to really spend some time on your diet and your fitness and your lifestyle and your emotional connection to food if the former doesn't work because you can do a lot you can do a lot in a positive direction before you need to hit the medication Or if you do hit the medication or are listening right now and you are on medication for type 2 diabetics, then ensure that you start working with somebody so that you can slowly reduce the amount that you're taking. Now, don't take my direction for reducing your medication. That's 100% got to come from your doctor and you need to let your doctor know that you and I are going to work together and this is how we're going to do it with the goal being to reduce medication. And if they're on board, then fantastic. Let's do it. Either way, improving your relationship with food and uh, not emotionally eating and not being a sugar addict and possibly, you know, turning your entire life around and becoming a health and fitness connoisseur can mean absolutely fantastic things for your life. So come and hang out. If you want to hang out with me, you want to work on any of this stuff, then please scroll to the show notes below. Um, Type 2 diabetes would be something that I'd be more than happy to work with you on. Uh, The others... I can point you in the right direction of people to help you there. 
And if you've enjoyed this episode or you think you know anybody that needs to hear it, then please share it with a friend, share it with a loved one, share it with anybody that you think needs to learn about diabetes and understand the difference. And maybe you've got diabetes and you want somebody to understand the difference between all of them as well so that they can better support you. Um, So share it with them too. If you've enjoyed this episode, give me five stars on any of the apps. These days, you can actually review and comment on individual episodes on Spotify. So I'd love to hear from you in the comments underneath the the actual episode on Spotify. Um, reviews and ratings on Apple are literally how the podcast industry runs. So I'd be very grateful for you to write a few positive words and share five stars on Apple. And other than that, thanks for being here. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. I hope you learned a thing or two. And you know the deal. Hit me up on socials, all that kind of jazz. And we'll be here next week. So I'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much. And I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavor to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.